0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. Hey, do you want to listen to the gist at home on your Alexa? Turns out we at Slate have built a new Alexa skill. We're perfecting it. So what you do is you say, Alexa, enable the gist to enable the skill on your Alexa device. And then you begin playing the show. And to play it after that, you can say, Alexa, play the gist. First enable, then play it just on the Alexa. (laughs) It's Wednesday, January 8th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If you told me that the cost for killing a man as bad and as good at being bad as Kassem Soleimani would be that some missiles would be fired at a base in Iraq and hurt zero people, I would say that actually seems like a fair cost to pay. Only... I do not believe that will be the sum total of the costs. Ian Bremmer, smart guy, multiple time, just guest tweeted today, I'm far from a Trump supporter, but impossible not to call a ran outcome a win for U.S. president and a big opportunity going forward. Outcome? We're not sure we're past incoming. You may have forgotten, you, the listener, not Ian, not talking to Ian now, you may not be alive to have experienced this, you may be in denial about this, but Soon after U.S. troops rolled into Baghdad, this was after a huge debate had played out between hawks and doves and within the Democratic Party and reluctant hawks and vials of powder were held by Colin Powell and Yellowcake and curveball. So after all that, the Iraqi army was routed much more easily than had been predicted. And the overwhelming consensus among Americans was, huh? That was a lot easier than I thought. No city-to-city fighting, no thousands of U.S. troops KIA. Seemed worth it. That's because we thought it was the outcome. It was just the inception. Ian Bremmer went on to tweet, But for everyone who thought killing Soleimani was going to lead to war, no, it just established red lines and deterrence. How does Ian know what it will lead to? This is a few days after the fact. Archduke Ferdinand was killed June 28th. 1914, World War I wasn't declared until July 28th, and that was seen as something that happened pretty much immediately. Let us see how both parties, the United States and Iran, decide to escalate or to de-escalate. And I just want to remind everyone, perhaps to inform you, if you weren't aware of this, that Iran is really good at taking its time. I doubt they will forever be deterred from all actions from this incident. Here's a little history lesson. 10 years ago, it was actually literally 10 years ago this Saturday, an Iranian physics professor, Masoud al-Mohammadi, was killed with a sticky bomb outside his home. So Iran vowed revenge. Here now is Dr. Matthew Levitt, director of the Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I hope to have him on the gist soon. Here he was testifying before Congress a couple years ago on how long Iran waited to take revenge Also, please note the specific military unit
0: involved. As they're arguing with each other in January 2010, someone assassinates Professor Mohammadi in Tehran with a sticky bomb. Professor Mohammadi was a particularly important person in Iran's uh, nuclear program. And at that point, Iran decides that two things will happen. The one is that the Quds Force will create a new unit, Quds Force Unit 400, specifically to target Western diplomats abroad and also targets uh, reflecting uh, Israel that is to say, Jewish targets. For example, the plot in Baku targeting two Jewish rabbis in a Jewish school. And the second is that Hezbollah would get its act together, would re-energize itself, rejuvenate the Islamic Jihad organization, recruit people with foreign passports who could travel abroad, and begin to target Israeli tourists worldwide. It did happen. It happened
1: almost two years after Hezbollah and Iran, which are all but indistinguishable for the purposes that we're talking about, noted that a plane from Tel Aviv had landed in Bulgaria on the way from the airport to the hotel that the bus carrying the passengers was bombed. Those passengers, 42 Israelis, mostly teens, the bomb killed the bus driver and five Israelis and injured 32 Israelis. That is just part of the tit for tat. There were many other missions and that was one of the earliest missions, and it happened more than two years after the initial incident. For over 30 years, Iran has largely stayed away from targeting, specifically targeting American civilians. And I think it's reasonable to worry that they could start now. I am extremely confident in saying this isn't over. We've not concluded. We've commenced. I, can't, I just can't see it ending with an airstrike That creates rubble, but no deaths. The Iranians have dubbed that airstrike, that rubble. They dubbed it Operation Martyr Soleimani. History shows this is not how they avenge what they consider to be a martyrdom. On the show today, I should feel about one reporter who has stood up to Trump before. He's now standing up with his chest thrust out just a little bit too much. But first... I got a lot of questions, not even about Iran. Well, I've got one question. What next with Iran? But lots of questions that I have are about a guy who doesn't question anything about a war with Iran. He likes it, but he has also said he's willing to take questions from the Senate. He's John Bolton. He says he will talk, but will Mitch McConnell let him? Might Adam Schiff ask instead? And if he does, what does he have to say? Does he even want to say it? Does McConnell know that he knows? And does he know that McConnell knows that he knows? And therefore, will he or won't he allow damaging testimony? Or will he or won't he allow irrelevant testimony? See how this all gets complicated with all these questions? Slate's Jim Newell drops by to provide some answers, or at least to entertain the questions in an entertaining way. John Bolton, former National Security Advisor, will testify before the Senate or maybe the House of Representatives if asked nicely or actually legally. But what will he say? What did he hear? Will they ask? Why is he offering? It's not often that I do an interview and ask all the questions first, but I guess that's what's happened now. Jim Newell is the senior politics writer at a nice little web outlet called Slate.com. And we're going to f- try to figure out what could be going on and what John Bolton's game is. Hello, Jim. Hey, how are you? So f- I'm good. First, let's talk about Bolton. He's smart, right? He's not. Eh, there are some members of the Trump administration, maybe not the uh, you know most proficiently tipped missiles in the silo, but Bolton's sharp
0: yeah I think there's a, a pretty good chance of boldness thought through what he's done, so he mm-hmm. definitely has some sort of reason <laughs> he's not just winging it here, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so um you know, it, it's just a matter of uh, there's you know, as we're going to talk about, there's so many different possibilities for why, and we're not really exactly sure just yet,
1: okay, so we don't know what he knows unless you think that there's any inkling or way to draw a supposition out of evidence to try to figure out what he knows about what Trump said or did as regards the Ukraine deal. Am I right? It's pretty, it's pretty much a black box what he knows.
0: Yeah, I I think there's probably a good chance that he knows a lot. I think it's more question of how much does he want to say, you know, does he want to come out with everything he's got, you know, in which case that might not be very good for the president? Or Mm -hmm. does he want to, sort of just say I can't recall or no comment which would, you know, indicate that he's maybe trying to help the president. So, it re- you know, it, it's really just about sort of what his intention is in how far he wants to go with saying what he knows.
1: Right. So that's true. We don't know what he knows and we I think there's an open question as to if he wants to harm or help the president.
0: Uh, is that accurate? I think so. I mean, when you think about someone like Bolton, here's someone who has been part and parcel of the conservative movement his entire life, it's his career, you know, if he were to come out against the president and really help bolster the case against him, you know, that would really be um, very damaging for him personally, I think not just, you know, professionally, but he would almost have an identity crisis to do that. But you know, if he really does feel strongly that it's what the moment requires, then maybe he could go through with it. But I think just knowing who he is, you know, a pretty loyal soldier within the Republican Party, Um, that's enough to make you question how far he wants to go.
1: Right. And a week and a half ago, though, I would say, but is he really on board with the president? You know, Bolton's very hawkish and the president isn't. And the president has said, though he's been more derogatory about other things. But then there was this assassination of Soleimani. Maybe you heard about it. And then I was thinking, okay, so is this perhaps could this serve as a message to Bolton? I mean, this is pretty much Bolton's biggest, biggest wish in the Middle East, and he got what he wanted. So is this Trump offering him uh, an olive branch by way of a missile attack? Or might this now free Bolton? Might he say, you know, this is what I wanted, got what I wanted. There's nothing really uh, for me to do except uh, cut the president's knees out from under him because I don't like what I saw.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds kind of like conspiratorial when you Think it, but it's like impossible not to think about. I mean, he does like the one geopolitical thing that John Bolton, you know, has (laughs) like fought his entire career for. You know, really going after and launching kinetic action against Iran, and then a week later, he's saying he's he's willing to testify. I mean, it would really, I mean, it's it's just very hard not to not to try to put those two dots together. But again, we you know we don't actually know.
1: Do you think Mitch McConnell knows what he's going to
0: say? I'm not sure that Mitch McConnell. Does I don't know um, you know, I'm not sure what kind of heads up he was given or not. I you know, Mitch McConnell might know that it's unlikely that Republicans will call Bolton just because of the way they've laid out this process. Mm-hmm. So maybe um, Bolton can read the numbers too, and maybe he thought that too. Maybe he'll say, I'm prepared to testify just as a way of legally covering himself knowing that there's a very slim chance of it happening. But I don't, I don't think that Mitch McConnell knows exactly what John Bolton might say.
1: And what conclusions might we draw from the fact that he waited for a legal process in terms of a, a subpoena for his aide to play out uh, in the courts? What what does that mean? I, there are some people saying if John Bolton wants to testify, I testify. And obviously, by saying, well, there's a subpoena and I can't testify, that means John Bolton doesn't want to testify. But then again, that was uh, proved not to be true. When there ceased to be a subpoena, he said, OK, now I'll testify.
0: Yeah, it may have just been that he didn't want to do it before the House Democrats and, and the investigation they were running, and he may have waited until you know, a little bit friend friendlier terrain and maybe what he viewed as like a more neutral terrain waiting until yeah. it got to the Senate to see if he's available. But also there's the question, you know, if he's saying right now, legally, I've decided that if I'm subpoenaed, I have to come in and talk. The House could subpoena him right now and try to get him to talk. And then it would be very interesting to see, you know, if they tried to jerry rig some kind of legal justification for why he can talk in the Senate, but not in the House. Yeah. But it doesn't seem that the House is going to go down that I was in the Capitol the other day and Adam Schiff, you know, he told a bunch of us that, yeah, we, we're not going to rule anything out, but, you know, he, it's probably comes down to the Senate now and, and the focus should be on getting him to, to testify there.
1: Sorry to shift this game theory, but let's talk about why Schiff would say that. Obviously, if he said, okay, we'll have him talk in the House, that will take off any pressure in the Senate. So he wants to put maximum pressure on the Senate. But if what he really wants, and I think he does, is to have all the facts come out, and if he also believes that Bolton has damaging facts to lay out there, why wouldn't Schiff want him to testify in
0: front of the House if that's the only way to get him to testify? You know, I, I just think it may be a, a timeline thing. I think the House really wants to bear down the pressure on, you know, Susan Collins and Corey Gardner and a lot of these senators who could vote for witnesses. I don't think they wanna muddy the process more and have it come back to the House and then that would just sort of confuse everything. I mean, I'm not I'm not entirely sure you know why why they're so resolute but i think it's just about not trying to muddy the waters at this point
1: okay so i've only had questions but i have i think uh made a conclusion based on what you said that indicates to me that adam schiff does not believe that john bolton is the smoking gun because if he was the smoking gun he wouldn't Schiff wouldn't care about timelines and timing and muddying waters. He would blow the mud out of the water if he were the smoking gun. So it says to me that Schiff at least suspects, if a timeline is more important than Bolton's testimony, that Schiff at least suspects that Bolton's testimony won't end this whole thing right there.
0: I I mean, that could be right. Or it could be (laughs) something where, yeah, you have Bolton, you know, if he testified in the House, and then that just leads you to want to... um Add more witnesses in the House and the House process just keeps going on for a while. And then that gives Senate Republicans more time to think about why it, you know, doesn't necessarily really matter. On the other hand, you could have a Senate trial where you're hearing the same facts you've heard before and people's impressions of, of whether that's impeachable or not are already baked in. But if you had some sort of bombshell come out during the Senate trial, I mean maybe that could, you know, in the moment make it a little more difficult for for Senate Republicans.
1: Right. So before this interview, uh, we were texting back and forth, and I was throwing out some hypotheticals. One, Bolton has nothing substantive to add, but was committed to going through a p- process of following a subpoena just because the guy loved the law. That nah, seems unlikely. No. Or two, he has nothing to add and really didn't want to be bothered, but now he figures, oh, it's just not worth fighting. I don't know about that. How about this? He does have something to add. And he really does want to damage the president, but doesn't want to seem, didn't want to seem too eager to do so. Could that be true? It could be true. Uh-huh. I mean, again, <laughs> it, doesn't, it, doesn't,
0: it doesn't match with our timeline about uh, Iran, you know, him, the president doing what Bolton wanted on Iran. And then suddenly just a week later, you know, really wanting to come out and, and take down the president. But yeah. I don't, it could be, it could be. But um, I think he does have. I think it's likely they does have something damaging on the president. We just don't know how willing he is to say it.
1: Yeah. So maybe this was possibility four. he does have something to add, something substantive where you said damaging to add, but he figures because of politics, McConnell will never call him. So this is an escape route where he looks good and he could blame someone else for not being heard.
0: Yeah, I think that is pretty likely.
1: Huh. And here's the last one. This is the triple reverse bank shot. He has nothing to add, is baiting the Democrats into calling him. He knows it will get a lot of attention. Then it will look like a nothing burger. He'll come out looking like he satisfied the law, but he will also ultimately help the anti-impeachment
0: forces. Right. So I think, that one is also very likely. So this one, and the <laughs> wait, last those are one. opposite things. You said two opposite things are very likely, right? I mean, it could be <laughs> opposite things. I'm just thinking, what's likely? You know, yeah. like one. of Those seem to be the most two realistic options. I mean, I think it, it could go either way. And yeah, can I add my my one last theory? Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, it's sort of a variation of the last one. But John Bolton has a book coming out, and he wants oh, to keep Jesus. himself in the news enough, so he'll offer something in the trial that's pretty juicy, though maybe not juicy enough to take Trump down which will get him a lot of attention a lot more hype for his book. How about that? Huh.
1: Is there is this like a long con podcast ploy? Is that what's going on? He wants yeah, to yeah. he wants to flip the book into a 12-part podcast. I think
0: so. I think he might be gunning for your job, actually. If so, he really just wanted attention,
1: <laughs> couldn't he and Omarosa do, you know, a theater tour or something like this?
0: That's true. But I mean, you can't really beat the attention of like a new witness in a, an impeachment trial. I mean, that's really good stuff. There, That so, is. That's
1: gold. Yeah. Can't maybe he'll that.
0: just, you know, get up there and he'll just tease out something else that you'll have to read later when his book comes out.
1: Yeah. Maybe he'll be like uh, Joe Biden and give out a web address that's actually like a text number and not understand what's going on. Right, right. Last question is, and this is a legit question that I'm sure you've been asked. So what's the likelihood that I think it's four Republicans have to uh, break ranks and get him to testify, assuming that no Democrats uh, like, uh, say, from West Virginia also break ranks and, you know, give a vote to McConnell?
0: Yeah, I think that you'll have Democrats pretty unified Mm -hmm. when they do have this vote mid-trial to try and compel not just Bolton, but a couple of other figures who they've been trying to get. Whether you can get four Republicans to join them, I think that the way the trial is structured – and I think McConnell did this intentionally – you'll hear all the opening arguments. You'll have the first rounds of questions from senators to the impeachment managers and the defense. And then I think Republican leadership will say – okay, I think we've heard enough. We don't really need to hear anymore. We've gone through exactly what the House gave us and we don't think it's enough. So we don't really need to call any more witnesses. Democrats are just trying to drag this out indefinitely. Yeah, And I think that will be an argument that maybe helps him uh, keep from losing four Republicans.
1: When's this going to happen?
0: When is what? The impeachment trial going to happen? Who knows? (laughs) Um, I I think Nancy Pelosi, once she sees the the impeachment rules in, in plain text that McConnell has you know, that he has the votes for. I think she'll transmit the articles then. And that could be by the end of this week. And Uh then, you know, within the next couple of weeks, the trial could get started. Oh, my God. So there's pretty
1: much no chance that it's that the senators who are vying for the votes of Iowans will be able to uh, leave and, you know, hit the hustings in Des Moines. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, it depends on how much money you have. Like, Bernie has a lot of campaign money, so apparently he's thinking about chartering flights so he can go back and do events at night and then fly back to D.C. So that may not work so well for, you know, Michael Bennett or someone with uh, fewer resources. This is actually a transportation issue? This is what we're talking about? Yeah, it's a transportation issue, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you can't do stuff during the day, but, like, yeah. But, like,
1: that's what it comes down to. It's have you given enough money to charter a
0: flight? right. Right. I know maybe Bernie will be nice and take his competitors with him. We'll see.
1: Oh, yeah. But then they'd have to declare uh, the fair value and pay back the Sanders campaign. That could get dicey. Right. Yeah. Jim Newell is the senior politics writer at Slate. This is one of those interviews where no questions were answered, but I think much was gained (laughs) just in the asking. Thank you,
0: Jim. Thank you. I hope we confused everyone more.
1: I, no, I mean, yeah, that wasn't <laughs> our goal, but I think, I think we did strike a couple of these possibilities off the table. And those will yeah. probably be the actual answers in the end.
0: Thank you, Jim. Thank you.
1: And now the spiel. In 2016, Maureen Dowd in the New York Times wrote an article headlined Hillary the Hawk, Donald the Dove. Because, well, mostly because of alliteration. But also because Hillary, you know, she's kind of hawkish. But how to explain Donald's so-called dovishness? It is true that he wants to end U.S. missions abroad. At the same time, he's always blathering about the power and the might and the fire and the fury. He endorsed torture on the campaign trail. He mused about destroying Iranian cultural sites? Is he just rhetorically or literally belligerent? Here is my take. Donald Trump likes endorsing war crimes more than he likes committing to war. In fact, the war crimes seem to be his favorite part of war. He pardons sailors and Marines who commit war crimes. He brags about doing that. He brags about the United States doing war crimes. For him, war is hell, but war crimes, they're pretty cool. That's why it's really dangerous and irresponsible to goad the president into further fits of pique. I would think that sensible people would want de-escalation. And having watched the coverage of the missile strikes, I think de-escalation should include rhetoric. Let us take CNN's Jim Acosta, who is famously tangled with Trump, Trump's lackeys, Trump supporters. Acosta had his credentials stripped temporarily in a Trump administration overreach. He early on, first day on the job, pressed the administration about its lies, about exaggerations for about inaugural size. That was right there on day one. And he's been at it and he has tried to hold Trump's feet to the fire. And that's good. But he also has a flair for the dramatic, which doesn't always play well when the situation calls for the understated. On CNN last night, filling time in the hours and hours after the strikes went down, he told viewers
2: this. Kind of fashion. I was talking to a source close to the White House earlier this evening who said that essentially that the president has built everything up to this point where he now has no other choice but to respond with some kind of massive retaliation and that he's going to look weak if he doesn't go down that road. And so the president has boxed himself in, Don, with his own rhetoric. We've seen this before. And the question is how the president responds at this point, he's going to do
1: this. Well, I don't know if the president's boxed himself in with his rhetoric, but I know that you stating that he's boxed himself into not looking weak does serve a little bit to box him in so that he doesn't want to look weak. Trump doesn't want to look weak. This is a reporter conveying something from an, an anonymous source. Who is it? Chris Ruddy, John Bolton, Eric Trump, Scaramucci, saying, well, if Trump doesn't strike back, Trump's going to look weak. What is that person's agenda? Does he or she want to strike and knows that saying strike you won't look weak is a way to get a strike? Or does he or she not want to strike? And is this person earnestly bemoaning what he thinks is going on? We know the president obsesses over cable news. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that the president was watching Jim Acosta, wants to say suck at Jim Acosta, and knows that he has tangled with Jim Acosta as much as anyone in the White House press corps. What form... Might a presidential fit of rage, a how dare you call me weak fit, what form might that take? It all seems very dangerous. It seems to me that Jim Acosta is also not adding much actual information in the moment, dangerously dangling out unsourced charges or insults and, pre- and positioning himself as a presidential antagonist rather than a removed party. Further strikes me that this is a highly tense, highly fraught moment where the president may be making decisions that affect the lives of his countrymen in the world and the world for years to come. We know he's emotional. We know he gets his information from TV. Why would CNN White House reporter Jim Acosta go on television and via an anonymous source bait the president? Later in that very appearance, Acosta said this, quoting an or maybe that very same anonymous source.
2: Uh, But that this is a president who is impulsive and doesn't think through the implications of his actions. Now, that may work okay for the president when he is looking for a short term political fix, on the border uh, when it comes to brinkmanship with china on trade and so on Uh, but this is a very different situation i mean people are saying tonight well maybe the iranians intentionally meant to you know hit areas away from these soldiers my goodness what if the iranians uh, had not done that and actually taken out a lot of u.s troops tonight this could have been a a massive catastrophe of proportions that we just can't fully appreciate. And so this was, this was a dangerous night at the casino for President Trump. Okay, I agree with Acosta on a lot of that,
1: but this is not the proper tone for a White House correspondent. It's not egregious or even inaccurate analysis, but it is analysis, it's not reporting. CNN should stick with this reporter as long as he's reporting and reporting hard, and challenging all the lies, and also surfacing alternative views, and hopefully giving us some context as to where those alternative views are coming from. But you have to be careful in giving the mic and the imprimatur of a company to him at this precise moment, to a guy who seems to get kind of a thrill at tangling with Trump, who has written a
2: book about it, who has this to say about Trump? It was a it was an illuminating moment because it said to me that, you know, here's a here's a guy who can't really take the heat, can't take the coverage. And so that is part of the reason why we saw the rhetoric escalate throughout the campaign. And I think it's why we've seen the rhetoric uh, escalate as he's been president, because to to a large extent. And I, you know, I don't take any joy in saying this. He cannot handle the scrutiny.
1: Not untrue. But in this moment, this specific moment. Let's not be calling Trump scared, stupid, out of options, or weak, precisely because we all know he is not strong enough to handle that. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who has decided to step away from his royal duties and also to renounce any claim he has to the throne of England. The Gist. There is a last Bolton possibility we haven't mentioned. He never planned to testify. He never wanted to be subpoenaed. But he does plan to reveal himself as the masked singer. And thanks for listening.